Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Simone Ante, and I am an instructor at Vancouver Area Universities, namely UBC, Simon Fraser University, and Kwantlen Polytechnic University. For today's podcast interview, I have invited Marianne Schantz, author of the book What Nudism Exposes, an Unconventional History of Postwar Canada, published by UBC Press. Marianne completed her PhD in history from Carleton University. She taught at McEwen University in Edmonton before becoming a researcher and a project coordinator with Covenant Health in Edmonton. She has contributed to the edited volume Contesting Bodies and Nation in Canadian History, published by the University of Toronto Press, and she has published in Histoire Sociale, Social History, and the Journal of the History of Childhood and Youth. What Nudism Exposes is Marianne's first book. She examines the nudist movement within the social and cultural context of post-war Canada by considering how nudist practices and attitudes both departed from and reinforced mainstream values in changing times. The book describes how nudists sought social approval as they participated in contemporary debates about child-rearing, pornography, and public nudity. Marianne explains the perspectives of the nudist movement while questioning its assumptions, particularly the defense of nudity as natural. What nudism ultimately exposes is how the body figures at the intersection of nature and culture, the individual and the social, the private and the public. It is a real pleasure to have you as my guest today. Thank you, Simon. It's lovely to be here. So I wanted to start by saying congratulations on the publication of your first book. I mean, it's not only exciting that your first monograph was published, but I understand it was also shortlisted for a special prize. Could you tell us what that competition was? Yeah, I was quite delighted and uh, and surprised to discover um, in the fall last year that my book um, was shortlisted for the Dia- Diagram Prize for Oddest Book Title of the Year. Um, and I didn't realize that this uh, this prize actually has quite a distinguished history. It's been around for 44 years, and it's awarded by Bookseller Magazine, a UK book industry um, publication. Um, and so they they very much are deliberate about not reading the books that are nominated. It's strictly on the basis of the title, and they they create this short list of oddest book titles um, from the books published in, in many fields around the world. Um, and as someone who's always hated coming up with titles for my essays and my my articles, um, I actually was quite gratified to find that I that I'd made the list, um, because really, you know, you you want to kind of catch people's attention with your with your title as well. So I I felt kind of validated um, by that. At the same time, I really think the subject of nudism um, and the titillation of nudity actually probably played uh, a big role in that. Um, some of the other titles were actually really amazing, like The Many Lives of Scary Clowns and Frankenstein Was a Vegetarian. So I actually really was quite flattered to be in that company. Um, but also, you know, it kind of speaks to something I've grappled with throughout this project, which is that I don't actually want to exploit nudism for my own exposure. You know, I don't, I don't want to, um, you know, I want to be very respectful of my subjects and my subject matter. Um, but there is this sense that that the subject itself um, 
you know, is, is kind of um, sensational in a way. And so I want to use that to pique interest and, and provide a new perspective on post-war Canada. It's a very good idea about sort of nudism as perhaps being sensational or titillating because in the field of Canadian historiography, certainly nudism is not a sort of typical area of study. And so I kind of wondered what is the philosophy behind nudism? So what is nudism and what convinced you to choose this topic as your uh, book that's true, you know, and, and it's true. And I've heard some of the quips that I think nudists themselves get a lot about, you know, whether nudism in a northern ca- country like Canada is really a very pleasurable activity. Um, you know, the questions about the fact that there is a nudist movement in Canada at all. Um, so, um, you know, the basic philosophy of nudism is that nudity is not inherently sexual. It's not not sexual, but it doesn't have to be sexual. Um, it's context dependent. And so, um, Organized nudism emerged in in Germany around the turn of the 20th century um, as something that was intended to promote physical and mental health um, in reaction to industrialization. So you think about, you know, people living in crowded, urbanizing um, industrial cities um, and that, you know, the, the one day off a week that they would get, that they were being encouraged then to go off into the countryside or, or um, engage in gymnastics and then to do so in the nude as a way of kind of maximizing their exposure to sunlight and fresh air and to kind of invigorate um, their bodies, but also to promote um, a positive attitude towards their bodies and also to um, strengthen social ties. This idea that clothing was a barrier is something that we erect between us and that by removing that, they could um, kind of strengthen social bonds. Um, And so I was really interested in using nudism as a way of exploring historical attitudes towards the body. Um, And so thinking about how could I get at that? How could I get at how people in the past have thought about and experienced their bodies. And nudism seemed like an opportunity for me to explore some of those questions, to take nudists as my subjects, and, and to explore the conversations that they were having with themselves as well as with the public. In the post-war context, I also focused heavily on the interaction between nudism and mainstream social norms and values. So early on, I was really influenced by something Mary Louise Adams wrote in the introduction to her book, The Trouble with Normal, Post-War Youth and the Making of Heterosexuality. She said, the point of studying dominant cultural discourses, mainstream ideals, is that we all have to negotiate them, whether we subscribe to them, are marginalized by them, or actively resist them. And so I thought, you know, could I study kind of mainstream culture in reverse by focusing on how an unconventional group of people who were nevertheless very concerned with respectability, were navigating the social norms that they were perceiving around them. And so that kind of coming back to my title, my title, What Nudism Exposes, is kind of speaking to my desire to use my study of nudism to contribute to a deeper understanding of Canadian society in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Well, given that the Canadian criminal code made it an offense to be nude in a public setting and that there would have been, you know, a very sort of strong religious influence sense of shame associated with public displays of nudity, could you sort of tell us how the nudist movement even began in Canada in sort of the late 1930s and 40s? 
And perhaps, again, because it's so secret or there's a lot of sort of sense of shame as well, uh, how were new members recruited? Uh, and maybe you could sort of tell us the kind of sources that you were able to sort of locate to pinpoint the origins of this movement in Canada. Yeah, so um, nudism is a little late arriving in Canada compared to other parts of the Western world. Um, in the 1930s, there's sort of fragmentary evidence of isolated groups of people skinny dipping in lakes um, and rivers, but nothing that approached an organized movement. Um, unlike in Germany, France, Britain, the United States, that had had well-organized and uh, movements, you know, by the 1930s. Um, the Vancouver Area Club that formed just before the war in, in 1939 is kind of the exception to this. Um so it's, it's really kind of after the Second World War that we're seeing a nudist movement take shape um, in Canada. Partly, I think um, this isn't really so much to do with, with the religiosity of Canadians per se. Um, you know, certainly there's an association between Christianity and modesty as a virtue, especially for women. Um, but nudists did have some success in making the case that social nudism was not incompatible with Christianity. And on the flip side, they struggled to convince um, people with loose religious affiliations that this was something that was socially acceptable or appealing to them. Um, I think we can account for kind of the lateness of the arrival of nudism in Canada more because of the kind of sparsely populated space that, that Canada was before the Second World War. It wouldn't have been difficult for people to find places to go nude or swim nude discreetly. Um, and so you, you find that nudism actually takes off in urban or suburban areas where there's a, there's a concentration of people, especially people of European origin, um, which in Canada becomes the Vancouver area and, and southwestern Ontario. Um, and also where, you know, there's, there's need for people to kind of escape the crowds and, and find a more discreet place to participate in nudism. So, you know, as I've already alluded, after the Second World War, when you have this huge boom of immigration with Europeans arriving from Germany, Italy, um, Britain, and elsewhere, um, that's when when um, nudism really starts to take off with a lot of leadership and, and membership from those recently arrived European immigrants. There was a lot of concern about the criminal code. Um, it was, and it is technically still illegal to go nude in a public place or in a place um, that's visible to the public. Um, so nudists were very careful to ensure that their clubs operated on private property that was shielded from public view, either through fences or natural barriers like trees and other um, kind of obstacles. And they took a sense of security from this, as well as the feeling that this gave them the moral high ground. Um, clubs and associations were, off, were often explicit in requiring or that they are putting forward their expectation that members follow the law, they took a lot of pride in and, and, and would frequently reference the fact that they were within the law to, um, to engage in social nudism on private property. Um, they advocated sort of an idea that good fences make good neighbors and they were asking for tolerance from the public. They weren't trying to foist their practices on people who were uncomfortable with it, um, but they also hoped that they would kind of be unmolested in their space and free to do what they wanted to do there as well. So when it comes to recruitment, um, that happened in a few ways. Early on, there were, um, it was more common for there to be discreetly worded advertisements placed in newspapers. So one example is the Vancouver Club that was founded in 1939. 
um, someone put an ad in the Vancouver province, member of NSAA wishes to form similar club here. And that was a reference to the British National Sun Air Association. And so that was sort of a coded reference that they knew only readers of British um, nudist magazines would be familiar with and would recognize. And that was both, you know, to ensure that it was someone who understood the philosophy, but also because newspapers wouldn't necessarily publish ads explicitly for nudism. And even the early organizations, their their names were um, were kind of vague. The, the initial Canadian nudist organization was the Canadian Sunbathing Association. And so um, that was both to avoid censorship and to be more publicly palatable. Another really big source in the post-war period was Sunbathing for Health magazine. So this was a, a magazine that was produced in Toronto between 1947 and 1959. It was sold on newsstands. It was a commercial publication, um, but it, it did have a lot of input from members, legitimate nudists who are part of the nudist movement. Um, and, and so it was consistent with the nudist philosophy in, in terms of the articles that were published. Um, and, and it did a lot in terms of being a public voice and presence for nudism. People who were interested and picked up the magazine could then write to the magazine and be put in touch with local organizers. So it was another sort of discreet way that people could be connected. And it really played that role of start of um, helping the movement grow in visibility and helping connect people. Um, later on in the 50s, as, as clubs start to form and they get larger, they also host open house events. Um, initially, these were clothed events. So for the day, they would ask their members to wear clothes. And then they would invite kind of local dignitaries, often um, ministers, school trustees, and and elected officials to come and tour the grounds and see the amenities that were available. But also it was really about kind of showing how normal and respectable their membership was so that people could actually see that they were, they were people that you would want to spend time with and that they're, um, uh, and, and so that they hoped that that kind of exposing themselves to public view would kind of mitigate maybe some of the titillation and, and, and unfamiliarity that people had with, with what was going on at these clubs. Um, by the late 50s, they actually start to do them nude. And so they would say it was only open to adults and they would have to sign that they weren't going to be shocked by anything that they saw. Um, and because they were worried that, um, you know, that people weren't seeing authentic nudism. Um, and so that becomes a really big source of publicity for clubs, um, you know, in the summer months when they host these open event house events. They try to recruit new members and they try to get a lot of publicity and they often do at, at that time. So um, for me, I listened to 25 um, radio or television interviews that were recorded in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Often these were recorded around some of those key events, conventions or open house events. Um, radio was a, an easier medium for covering the nudist movement for obvious reasons. Um, so there was more of those. Um, so that was another big, big source for me as well as well as some internal kind of records, um, letters and, and newsletters that were written by, by clubs and key members. You talk very much about the role of sort of nudist clubs to promote themselves to, to the public, that they are sort of normal, ordinary Canadians. And so there might be more new members attracted to the nudist movement. So one thing that I sort of found interesting is that even though 
the sort of nudist movement of the 1950s and 60s is very, very keen to attract new members and to, you know, continue to gain a more positive public perception. I found um, in your book that there were very strict barriers to actually enter into a formal sort of nudist club. And so in this sort of first post-war generation, what kind of members were nudist clubs trying to attract and what groups of people maybe were prevented from entering? Yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic at play. Um, and, and so... Um, Early on, you know, Ray Connett is is one of the the leading promoters of Canadian nudism. Um, he was one of the founding members of the Vancouver Club. Um, he went and served overseas during the war. He went to nudist clubs in the UK while he was there. Um, he comes back and he picks up his interest in in nudism, and he um, starts beca- he becomes uh, kind of volunteers to be sort of an editor and a leading voice in Sunbathing for Health magazine, and he has a regular column. And his wife, Mildred uh, Connett, who writes under her maiden name, also has a women's page column. Um, and so they are um, kind of trying to attract new members. But one of the things he says in that magazine, uh, he writes, he, it goes without saying that to inspire others to try a way of life which is still unacceptable to normal society, one must in every other way but this be completely normal, above reproach in all things. And I find that quote really telling in in terms of the idea that you're trying to recruit people who will reflect well on the movement. And so there's always this sense of wanting to attract people, wanting to grow the movement, but balancing that with getting the right type of people um, and whatever that means. Um, and and so um, practically speaking, that often means um, single men are heavily screened um, during the war. Um, uh, the American historian Brian Hoffman argues that um, during the Second World War, international nudist magazines like the American nudist magazines um, really pivoted to more of a pinup style of photography in their magazines and then marketed those magazines to soldiers. And so what happens is after the war, there's this huge interest in joining nudist, nudist clubs by, by men that have come back um, and, and have been reading these magazines. And so... Um, in Canada, that's certainly the case too. That clubs, club leaders indicate they are getting applications from far more uh, men than women, and they really want to try and balance out the gender ratio. They're afraid that if they don't have enough women, they'll scare off prospective women and children. There's a concern with safety and um, and screening out people who might be predators um, or swingers. Um, and so they really want to attract people who will just be, you know, socially pleasant to be around. But that also leads to, um, certainly to exclusion. Um, they um, definitely screen out anyone that seems to be a homosexual. There's concern about initially in the 50s and 60s about separated and divorced people. The clubs are concerned that they not be seen as playing a role in marital breakdown. And so those marriages that are already seen as maybe rocky are you know, are, are, they're maybe opening themselves to, to a risk there. Um, and then there's certainly, you know, the whiteness of the clubs. In, in the 50s, there's very much a strong European, recent European immigrant presence, particularly German, but also Dutch, British, Netherlands, people from various European countries. Um, they, they do talk about nudism as something that's um, kind of open to everyone and inclusive of everyone. Uh, but in reality, um, you know, the Canadian clubs are are very um, are very white, and um, there's sort of a naivety to some degree. You know, sometimes they 
in the United States, the Seattle Area Club split over the um, issue of integration of Black uh, uh, members. And um, so there's sort of this sense of, well, we don't have to worry about that here. Not recognizing the fact that they're, you know, in the Vancouver area, there's certainly a long history of, um, of, of Chinese and Japanese people living in those areas. So, um, so uh, you know, that what I find interesting here is is that there's this tension between the nudist claim to be socially inclusive and the belief that nudity breaks down social barriers. At the same time, they're erecting these other barriers, kind of replacing the physical barrier of clothing with their other barriers like screening. Um, strict standards of behavior, and also an emphasis on on gender and sexual norms. Um, you know, you can reject clothing, but you don't necessarily reject, um, you know, masculine or feminine gender identities when you do so. So they they derive some safety from from those new barriers, um, both physically and and sort of psychologically. Uh, well, it's one thing for consenting adults to join a nudist club, but in the post-war baby boom period where there was increasing media and sort of scientific and medical attention on children's development and well-being, uh, I kind of wonder how the nudist clubs deal with the participation of youth in their movement. Yeah, this is a really key development in, in my mind of the post-war period and something I think that I contribute to the nudist historiography um, is the way that children became really central to the practice and marketing of the movement in the post-war period in the midst of the baby boom in a way that they hadn't before. So, you know, the German movement in the pre-World War II, I mean, there's a lot of adult um, hiking groups or gymnastics clubs. There are nudist parks that are that are family-oriented, but it, it's certainly not the um, the main focus, whereas I would say that in the post-war period in Canada and, and likely elsewhere as well, it re the main focus becomes recruiting and attracting um, nuclear families. And, and the um, children become a key part of that marketing. Um, there's this idea that, you know, the, the idea of nudity is natural and innocent. Well, children really epitomize that. And so they are then able to argue that, you know, that all nudists have that innocence, that childlike innocence. Um, at the same time, they market nudism as an effective way to socialize children and to teach them acceptable and unacceptable behaviors and bodily norms. Um, so, you know, child psychology really has bec becomes prominent um, in the 50s and 60s. And that's also one of the key developments that I see in the evolution of nudism is that while nudism has always been about physical and mental health, um, I would say the early movement leaned more heavily into the physical health side of things, um, whereas post-World War II, there's less of a, an argument about physical health. You have antibiotics and vaccines. People are living longer than ever. The argument that you need to be nude to get the maximum benefit of sunshine and fresh air is a little more tenuous. And, and, and so they really do um, lean into that movement about it being um, good for mental well-being. Um, particularly for children, that if you want to raise healthy, well-adjusted children who are comfortable in their own skin, um, that nudism is is the way to go. Um, and I see that, you know, for women, actually, there's kind of two layers of coercion that they face that, you know, um, oftentimes there's the, the indication that, that, that um, you know, if their husband's interested in trying it, that if they're a good wife, they'll, they'll give it a try that they should do it for their children's well-being because it's good for their children. Um, so, so that comes into play. Um, 
so yeah, that 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 idea of it um, being good for mental health really becomes um, becomes prominent. That said, it's it's difficult to actually access children's voices and perspectives on this, as is as is often the case. We have limited archival evidence of of how children themselves viewed it. Um, and sometimes I, I see that there was a silencing of children as well. I think that the I, the message that nudity, you know, there, there's often this repeated refrain that children are natural nudists, the idea that children love, just naturally love to be without clothes, um, which, you know, is, is, is well true for some children, but, but likely not all children. And, and that refrain can be kind of flattening of children's experiences. Um, and sometimes um, parents are told, you know, if, if they're worried about whether their children will um, kind of leak to friends and family who often weren't aware that a family was participating in nudism, there was sometimes parental fear that children would, would tell and, and expose this activity. And so sometimes they were told to tell their children not to talk about it, that this wasn't something we talk about outside the family, which is interesting because so often in nudism, the critique is that privacy equals shame that the fact that we are private about our bodies and we wear clothes means we're shameful of them, but there's not that recognition that, that maybe the message to your children not to talk about it could convey the very same thing. So it's an interesting tension there around children. Um, and, um, and, and, and that was really one of my favorite topics to explore in this book. And so kind of going from, from the private to the public, because by the 1960s and 70s, there's a lot more exposure to the Canadian news movement in mass media, right? Whether it's photography in magazines or on TV or radio programs. Could you give us some examples of how mass media either helped or hindered the nudist cause? Yeah, it's interesting to, to look at um, the role of mass media throughout the history of Canadian nudism. Um, in the 50s is, is when Sunbathing for Health is, is being published and, and the photos are really um, uh, kind of an interesting thing to examine because Sunbathing for Health, which I had mentioned earlier, um, mixed in with their articles on nudism are kind of full-page um, uh, photographs um, I would say 90% of them are sort of glamour photographs of women um, nude. And, and then, um, you know, another um, percentage of them are of uh, men, kind of bodybuilder physique style um, photographs of, of men. Um, and then there's a few kind of more um, candid photos uh, that are not of professional quality that are kind of interspersed throughout the text of the magazine. Um, and so that is, is one of the kind of first forms of mass media that's used to promote nudism in Canada. Um, and I would say it really has a mixed result. Um, early on, um, you know, there's this idea that, that um, you know, photography is really popular. This is the era of Life magazine. And, um, and there's sort of this sense that, like, to be a modern movement and to get public attention, you need to have photographs. Um, but as you, you kind of see a bit of an exchange with readers as the magazine is, 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 has its publication run and, and readers um, are often question the fact that these photos don't necessarily seem to line up exactly with the messaging, the fact that you are only showing a certain body type, um, that there, there are these kind of models that are being featured and not average people, that there's way more women than men. Um, and so readers question some of these things. And, um, and, and so I'd say increasingly nudists themselves start to 
see the problems with with the, the the photographs not which they had initially kind of seen as as sort of um providing a window onto the movement um they they start to realize are actually more problematic than they thought um so i think from there in the 50s they turn more to, uh, and into the 60s they turn more towards open house events um and to inviting people onto the property to try and and actually visit a club and see nudism and that's where you get a lot of the radio interviews happening um, a couple of innovations that the Miss Nude World pageant is launched by an Ontario club the Four Seasons in 1970 as sort of a big um, kind of publicity campaign um, it never actually really becomes an international event but it, it does attract um, Canadians and Americans to this contest in in the early 70s they say they get thousands of people out to the event every year um it, it does make them quite a bit of money through ticket sales and and that kind of thing um and and attracts a lot of of media attention you get people like gordon sinclair or football stars stars like angelo mosco who are who are judges of these events um and so i think that attracts a certain amount of um, attention. Something else that we see, I'd say in my book, is one of the other big media-getting events is at Rec Beach around 1970 uh, when a group of bathers are arrested for nude bathing. And what had up until that point been actually sort of um, a relatively unknown spot. You know, UBC students and locals in the area knew about nude bathing at Rec Beach, but the general Vancouver public didn't. Suddenly you get front page headlines in the Vancouver province and the Vancouver Sun bathers arrested, nude bathers arrested at Rack Beach. And the following weekend, there are hundreds or thousands of people out to, to kind of check out the, the beach. So that's another one where there's quite a bit of press, quite a bit of attention, a little bit of controversy as well, because a local alder woman, um, Bernice Gerard, um, who's very religiously conservative, is, is quite opposed. And so there's some, some kind of press and letters to the editor back and forth around um, nudity at, at Rack Beach around that time. Um, so it, it's interesting, um, you know, it opens, opens up some public conversations, gives me some interesting sources, um, but uh, it, sometimes it's tricky for nudists to, to capitalize on that and turn it into a message that's really one that they, that they hope the public will, will, um, will present the image that they want. And so by the late 1960s and early 1970s, sort of uh, new demographics, new social and political movements, such as environmentalism uh, and second wave feminism. How do these movements change the, the nudist movement? Yeah, I'd say there's kind of two kinds of ways that these developments impacted the nudist movement. The first is that sometimes these things pose problems that needed to be addressed in the operation of clubs. So um, you know, will separated or divorced people be admitted as members, um, you know, with, with kind of the rise of the, of the sexual revolution, um, you know, increased social drinking, will we allow drinking on club grounds? Um, and, and so there's sometimes a concern there, a, a movement that had once seen itself as progressive starts to face criticism from within its own ranks that it may be a bit backward. It might be overly restrictive. It might be overly um, strict. Um, and so that sometimes there's a potential for clubs and, and sometimes clubs do split over these, these issues. And so I'd say that becomes, uh, much more common at, at around 1970 that, that clubs are debating some of these issues and having some, 
significant um, uh, differences of opinion on, on which approach to take. The second way I'd say that these social and political movements come into play is when the clubs proactively align themselves with some of these movements for marketing purposes or as a source of club identity. Um, so, for example, the Miss Nude World pageant that was launched in 1970, I'd say that on the one hand, it's sort of embracing or tapping into the sexual revolution in, in terms of a, being a more overtly sexual spectacle um, and, and kind of the sense that there's a larger public tolerance and acceptability uh, of that type of thing. At the same time, I see it as a reaction to second wave feminism. And, and so, you know, the, the, the very first Miss Nude World in 1970, Rhonda Stalin, when she's interviewed by, um, by the media, they actually ask her if, if she's a feminist and she says no and that she still likes to be treated as a woman. Um, the fact that the Miss Nude World pageant was launched, um, you know, shortly after the, the big protests at the Miss America pageant, to me, it, it, it seems very much to be sort of a reaction, more of a conservative reaction to that, to the rise of second wave feminism. Um, but they also kind of just suggest, oh, it, it's just for fun, right? It, it, it's, not, it's not serious, it's, it's just for fun. So I think it's interesting from my perspective to see how this group of people are, are navigating some of those changes and, and, and grappling with them and responding to them. Um, one other example is, is in, in Quebec. I'd say that in the 1970s, um, the movement really fizzled out in the 50s and 60s. It's the only place where a club um, actually faced charges for practicing nudism, social nudism on private property. Um, and, but around, in the, around 1969 um, and 1970, clubs start to reform in Quebec. Um, this is, you know, post Duplessis era, and, and it's quite a different political climate. Um, but what also happens there is that um, clubs start to move away from the term or the nudist identity and towards naturism or naturisme. And, and, and they're kind of with that term comes sort of an affiliation with ecology and, and with more of the environmental movement, a desire, a re-emphasis on nature and getting back to nature. Um, so they're rejecting maybe that more sexualized direction that clubs like the one running the Miss Nude World pageant are going, and they're saying, you know, it's more about getting back to nature and the naturalness um, of nudity. So you could see then as well the, the impact of, of the rise of, of the modern um, environmental movement and, and the way they're trying to kind of realign themselves um, in, in light of that. And finally, I mean, as we look today in 2023, the nudist movement remains small in terms of registered members. What would you say the nudist movement's most significant contribution to post-war Canadian society was? That's an interesting question. And actually what I'd say to start is maybe what it didn't contribute in Canada that it contributed elsewhere. So in the United States, um, historian Brian Hoffman looks a lot at um, the role of the American Sunbathing Association in challenging censorship laws. It was closely aligned with the American Civil Liberties Union, and it played a key role in having some of those censorship laws overturned through some really landmark court cases. Um, they they um, you know published unretouched full frontal nudes in their magazine. They didn't shy away from that controversy. In Canada, they didn't do that. Sunbathing for Health 
airbrushed their photos. They they didn't want to take on that on that fight. Um, another example of um, sort of a contribution elsewhere is in New Zealand. Historian Caroline Daly um, argues that nudism migrated from the bush, from private rural sites um, to the beach over this period, to more public and visible and mainstream um, sites, and that. Um, seeing how nudism became aligned with sort of the free beach movement that takes off in the in the 70s and again in Canada I don't see that being the case I am I see the organized nudist movement and the free beach movement as distinct phenomena that coexisted in the 70s and continue to to coexist today um, but what I would also say is I think it's quite difficult to conclude that nudism contributed to post-war Canada in a substantial way, which might sound odd coming from someone who's written a book about the movement, but I'm actually more interested in what studying the nudist movement reveals about post-war Canada. I, so I believe that the nudist movement offers us a new perspective on this period. Um, it allows us to see how nudists, sometimes as individuals and sometimes as social groups, presented themselves to the Canadian public and navigated social changes like second wave feminism, the sexual revolution, the rise of modern environmental movement, what norms they felt they needed to uphold and, and which they could push or revise. Um, and so I'm really interested in, in those questions. Um, so some of the ways that my sources weigh in um, to the story that has been told so far in the historiography about um, life in post-war um, Canada. So just one example, um, Mona Gleason and Mary Lou Louise Adams both published on sort of normalizing discourses in, in the post-war period and the, the impact of um, psychological rhetoric and, and the importance of, of being normal and conforming. Um, and, and they did so by looking at um, expert advice, by looking at um, by prescriptive literature. And so what I think is interesting here in my source is that we're coming at those questions through a different angle. And so, you know, on the one hand, I think nudists are very much reflecting the impact of those discourses in terms of echoing those discourses by talking about the importance of raising healthy, normal, well-adjusted children. But at the same time, they're turning those to their own ends to argue that um, you know, nudism is consistent with the advice of child psychologists and is a unconventional way of achieving widely shared um, social social norms. And so, you know, for me, that's been the most interesting contribution is is the window it offers us onto this this group of of people um, navigating um, changing times. Marianne, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Simone. My guest today was Marianne Schantz, the author of What Nudism Exposes, An Unconventional History of Postwar Canada. This book was published by UBC Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. 
This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queen's University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Simone Ate. This interview was recorded on March 21st, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team who also support the Champlain Society. Mm-hmm.